What would it mean for Americans to learn once again the simple art of talking to one another? Hey, it's Dustin, and you're listening to The Burleson Box. Today on the show, I'm so excited to welcome John Bow, author of I Have Something to Say, Mastering the Art of Public Speaking in an Age of Disconnection. John was fascinated by the possibility that speech training could foster the kind of psychological well-being more commonly sought through psychiatric treatment, and intrigued by the notion that words can serve as medicine. Bo set out to discover the origins of speech training and to learn for himself how to speak better in public. From the birth of democracy in ancient Greece until two centuries ago, education meant, in addition to reading and writing, years of learning specific easily taught language techniques for how we interact with others. Nowadays, absent such education, the average American speaks 16,000 to 20,000 words every day, but 74% of us suffer from speech anxiety. On today's episode, you'll learn an ancient system of speech techniques for overcoming the fear of public speaking and how they can profoundly change our lives. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When's the last time you evaluated your credit card processing statement? Our partners at Stacks are offering a free savings analysis for our listeners, where they will actually take your merchant statement with your current processor and show you where you're overpaying. Stacks has saved orthodontics practices over 40% per month on payment processing costs. So don't wait. Get your free savings analysis today and see how much you're overpaying for your credit card processing. Go to StacksPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars to schedule your savings analysis today. Plus, as a special offer for our podcast listeners, if you sign up today, you can get your first two months of payments processing costs waived from Stacks. Once again, that's StacksPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars. Stop overpaying. Start saving. Welcome, everyone. I'm so excited to welcome John Bow to the podcast. John, thanks for being here. Well, thank you, Dustin. Your new book is I Have Something to Say, Mastering the Art of Public Speaking in an Age of Disconnection. I love the book. Thank you for writing it. Thanks for liking it. <laughs> You're an award-winning journalist, and you go through quite a journey in this book, I'm I'm curious first why you wrote it, and then we'll talk about that journey you went through because obviously you're really good at the written word. Uh, what was that journey like, researching this book for the spoken word? In one word, the journey was miserable. Every step <laughs> of the way, it was miserable. But it was really cool. Also, it was a really long journey. It was a really long story. But the short version is, I had always hated public speaking, and as a writer, you know, you whenever you publish something, you're cool and famous for exactly eight minutes. And so you have to go around and talk about it. And I always failed at that. And it wasn't the worst, but I just never rose to the level that I thought I could or should. And I wondered, what is the problem? Because in regular life, I'm definitely not shy. I'm pretty articulate and funny, and I don't care if I look stupid. So why am I not sort of a cogent public speaker at all? So I would spend so much time writing things, trying to be meaningful and create meaning for other people. And when it was time to talk about it, I just felt like it was just a lot of chaff. I was like a chaff machine. So all my life, I thought public speaking was kind of dumb and uncool and not for me, even though I was a bad public speaker and would have wanted to be 
a good public speaker. But just if you had told me, hey, you know that they have lessons for this, I would have said, yeah, those aren't for me. And so I was working on a project in oral history about love. And I interviewed this step cousin of mine from rural Iowa who had been a recluse all of his life. And when he was 59 years old, after living in his parents' basement, pretty much playing around with a model train set his whole life, he got married. And everyone in my family in Minneapolis, we would kind of make jokes like, wow, I wonder how that went down. Like, (laughs) how did that happen? So later I interviewed him for this book. And I said, how did you go from being a recluse to talking to this woman for the first time who you would eventually marry? And I assumed that it was psychiatry and therapy and meds or something like that. And he said, I joined the Toastmasters Club. And so that very slowly, but like irresistibly set off this series of lights in my brain. Like, what? 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 And it made me fall in love with public speaking. And it set me off on this journey of researching what is public speaking and what does it mean and what does it do for people? And so I realized, oh, the Greeks used to teach this stuff. Like five minutes after they invented democracy, they had to invent speech training because suddenly we lived in a world where you needed to speak well. And the Greeks just had this presumption, like you can't be part of any big organization like the church or the military or, you know, politics, anything, if you don't know how to talk because you're just going to get beaten up. You're just going to get killed. And so they came up with these really cool ways to teach it. And they, the Romans came along and they improved on some of those methods and they taught this stuff for 2000 years. And then they stopped teaching it a couple hundred years ago because science became cool and public speaking seemed weird by comparison. And so I fell in love with the idea that, oh my God, we can all get this psychological benefit from learning how to speak once again. And we're all kind of messed up right now because nobody knows how to connect with anyone. No one knows how to express themselves. And if people don't understand you well, you kind of hate them and you kind of hate your life without even knowing it. And you just feel very excluded and alienated. So I thought, well, this is a pretty cool thing. It's a pretty cool bunch of IP to revive. So that's what I, that's what my book was all about. And damn thing took me 10 years to write because it's a very hard subject to write about. And now I teach it for a living and, you know, work with people and work with companies. So the whole thing has kind of come full circle. It's so well-researched and I love that you've made the connection between, we stopped teaching this a few hundred years ago. And now today, as you mentioned, we have an epidemic of loneliness. I think I don't want to get the statistics wrong, but they're in the book. A significant supermajority of millennials feel they don't feel comfortable expressing their thoughts or opinions, right? They'd rather text or interact online. The interesting connection, I'm curious, because you talk to so many people in the book that we all would assume we're just like naturally gifted speakers, right? So I'm thinking of CEO of Domino's Pizza who gets in front of thousands of franchise owners. Uh, one of the most popular TED speeches of all time, Susan Kane, right? One of our favorite authors, 35 million views or something. We just assume she's gifted at that. Uh, Debbie Fields, you got to interview one of the owner of our favorite cookies, right? That a kind of assumption that these people are just good at it and, and I'm not because I'm anxious to get up in front of people. What did you learn in, in talking to them? Did anything surprise you in your interviews with those people? everybody's story was a little bit different, but I think there's one big takeaway that they got, that I got, that anyone listening to this should get, which is you can learn 
public speaking. We all think it's uh, a matter of your character. It's a matter of your, you know, psychological makeup. I can't do this because I'm nervous, because I get nervous, because I'm this type of person. And oh, those loud people, those charismatic blowhards, they'll run away with the show and they're naturally good at this. And I just can't do it. And so that is 100% false. It is a technical skill that anyone can learn. And it's like cooking. So you don't hear anyone talking about, oh, I have cooking anxiety. But it makes perfect sense to say, oh, yeah, I can't speak because I have speak speech anxiety. And like, no, you break it apart in the same simple, dumb way that you break apart any recipe for cooking. And it's and it sounds crazy to say it, but these people that you just mentioned, they all learned it step by step. You know, you add a little bit of this, you think a little bit about that before you put your words together, you prepare in this way, and suddenly you can kind of get your thoughts out there. And then that makes you a little bit more confident. So you repeat those steps again and maybe do it a little bit better, a little bit more attentively. And then it works out even better. And you keep learning. Oh, my gosh, I can I can actually do this. So one of my favorite classes in college, I was fortunate to take a public speaking class. And a lot of the principles you cover in the book, I want to get to those on that you can learn this. But I want to step back first and say, why are we so anxious? If, if we can learn it, why are we so anxious to do it? That's I just think there's nothing that cuts to your core more than that. Like some people care a lot about the way they look and it just wounds them to the core if they look bad. When I don't care about that at all. Um, but speech, if I say something dumb or I express myself in a way that makes you think I'm not special, I it just bugs me, you know? And I think most people share that. It's like, you know, having a bad hair day, but for your for your brain and your soul and your <laughs> your character, you know? So like, oh, everyone is judging me on the basis of this false, bad, lame version of me. How do I correct that? You're immediately pissed, you know? Everyone's, no one wants to come off looking bad. What You, you did this before we got on this podcast and it's a neat tool that I want to talk about in learning about the audience. You and I had a call to, to learn what, who am I talking to? There's a bunch of dentists and doctors. What What is this weird podcast you have? And, and and how can I help your audience? That one takeaway has been powerful for me when I if just get in front of a group of employees or even a patient. Can we talk about that? Yeah. I mean, here's an example of one of the steps that is so easy to take. And it's I always tell clients, this is so dumb. What I'm going to teach you is so obvious that you're going to feel like it's a fraud because there's nothing intellectual about it. And he, this comes from Aristotle, comes directly from Aristotle. He said, the audience is the beginning and the end of public speaking. So if I'm going to go talk to anyone, whether it's my partner or my kid or a group of you know Canadian pension fund, whoever, my first instinct is to think about how dumb I am and how dumb they'll know I am. You know, it, it's to go to thoughts of anxiety and which are all about me. And then I'll think about my material. Okay, I have this great Greek stuff I want to lay out there and explain to people, how do I teach it well? How do I do that well? And Aristotle's thing is just forget all that and think about who you're talking to first, because the Canadian pension fund is going to be different than talking to you. Talking to a group of orthodontists might be different than talking to a group of dermatologists. They might be different than talking to a bunch of eighth graders here in Chinatown in New York, which was another group you know that I talked to and worked with. 
And so you start thinking about who you're talking to and you make a list. What's their deal? What time of day is it? What, what are their concerns? What do they love or hate? What do they need to use this stuff for? Um, did they eat lunch? You know, if you're talking to a conference, is it the end of the conference or the beginning of the conference? Because all those things influence what they care about. So you might be smart and have the best ideas in the world and want to tell your ideas, but they care more about themselves than you. And if they're in San Francisco and they just had a big earthquake, that's on their mind, first and foremost, more than you and whatever your great ideas are. And so you take that into consideration and it lightens your load a lot because you realize 90% of what I thought I had to know or talk about, like they don't care about, I can drop that. And so it just focuses you in this huge way and it gets your mind off how nervous you are or how dumb you might feel. And it's the first step out of a few steps that just makes it suddenly your load is much lighter. I just want to highlight that it, it works for me. I even, even though I get on stage and I speak for a living in lots of different venues, the tendency is always to think up here, how can I come across as clever? How can, like you said, how can I not be dumb up there? And the minute you flip it and go, what did they need from me? Suddenly the anxiety starts to, I instantly in my head will go away. And um, it's just really powerful. Also, I think a lot of those chestnuts, I mean, there's another part of this too, which is everyone thinks that anxiety and confidence are the biggest thing about public speaking. So if you can just get rid of your anxiety or somehow acquire a bunch of confidence, then you'll be great at speaking. And like, you could take a Xanax and then you would feel less anxious. Maybe you'd feel more confident too, but that wouldn't improve your ability to put words together and it wouldn't improve your ability to connect with this audience. So I think all of those chestnuts like imagining your audience naked or you know there are 10 other things like that imagine your anxiety floating down a stream farther away from you and your or the um that thing about body poses power poses how that stimulates these chemicals and that was kind of dismantled and called out a few years ago but people really went for that and when you think about the simplicity of just now think about the people you're talking to and construct some thoughts take the parts of yourself that will be useful to that audience and tee those up so that those are front and center for that audience. You cannot get any more common sense or practical than that. Yeah. And you found that this was an inspiring story. You can be yourself. It doesn't have, it can't be all about you, but you can be authentic on stage. And I, I'm thinking back to one of the interviews where we had the common misconception. You got to be like Tony Robbins up there, just pumping up the crowd and, you know, shooting off fire cannons. And that's, that's a good public speaker. And it's so inauthentic right you know it's it's not who that person is in real life uh you know I, i'm curious you know what was that like it seems like that was a hard journey for you and getting feedback from fellow toastmasters what takeaways do you have for the audience from from going through that kind of painful process i mean i think that the hardest thing about public speaking is when you're new at it is if you really start looking at it closely you realize okay I have a hundred options at every second for which self can I be? Should I be my more thoughtful self? Should I be this rowdy self? Like I do have a part of me that's slightly Tony Robbins-y if I really push it, but that guy comes up only once in a while when I'm hanging out with my friends and I'm very relaxed. And the idea of me going on a stage and being all energetic like that, and, you know, Susan Cain in my book, she called it raw, raw. There's this, there's this raw, raw, approach to public speaking, which I think most people hate. 
And I was one of those people who hated. I was like, I just, that's not me. I'm a writer. I'm pretty thoughtful. I'm from the Midwest. We don't do rah-rah. You know, even if on a day, if I won the lottery and you say, how's it going, John? I'm not going to be like, oh. (laughs) So so just figuring out a way to be thoughtful, figuring out which one of those hundred selves to choose from and how to make that work and how to, you know, the, the root of oratory back in ancient Greece came from the same root as acting. And they both came from the root of to interpret. So what I can use my voice this way, I can use my body, I can write the words this way, but which what's the what are the best way to arrange those things so that I can get my point across? And so when you realize, oh, it's this artistic process and you can choose whatever you want, you could make yourself be Tony Robbins if that works for you, or you could make yourself be, you know, think of really, really thoughtful speakers. I mean, Susan Cain is a great example. So my journey, you know, you asked, how did I figure that out? It was sort of one painful step at a time. But once I really landed on that thing of the audience as the beginning and the end of public speaking, it took the focus off of me. And so I didn't have to feel like a phony anymore. That question about authenticity was sort of put to rest and it hasn't bothered me ever since. A great step in the process you share on page 69, knowing why you're speaking. Why, you know, someone calls you and says, hey, I'd like you to come speak to this group, knowing why. And you say, give a general goal and a specific purpose. So you say, quote, after hearing my speech, my audience will know X and respond by doing Y, end quote. I really like that. That's really powerful. It's well worth many multiples, the price of the book. When do you start that process? Because we'll start there. If you're if, if someone calls and says, hey, can you, can you come speak? I'm thinking of people listening to this. Can you come speak to our class about what it's like to be an orthodontist? You know, what, you know where do you start that process? of determining why you're even showing up to do the talk? Oh, it is so counterintuitive. Most people, when they are asked to do a talk or presentation, they immediately go to their slides. Maybe they'll start writing out their ideas, but most people these days seem to go to the slides first. And my method, which when I say that, I almost say it in quotes because there's nothing new under the sun. I just have my own version of old, you know, classic techniques for teaching this stuff. But no, don't write down a word. Don't choose any of your slides. Do that thing I said about think about your audience and make a list of attributes about who they are. And the second thing, second step is what you just said. Think about the purpose. Think about what you want them to know or do as a result of your talk. And for me, that was super weird. I reacted very negatively to that because I just thought, I'm not here to tell people what to do. That sounds manipulative and Machiavellian. And It took me a while thinking about that to realize, no, think about when you hate, like when someone comes up to you and they're prattling and you don't know why they're speaking to you, that's what drives you crazy because it's so disrespectful of your time. So what you really want is someone to come up to you and just say, Dustin, I want you to know blah, 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 so that we can do blah, blah, blah. And then you're like, okay, cool. I know what to do. I know my marching orders. Thank you for being so clear. And so when you're going to go talk to that group of dermatologists or orthodontists, you think about what do you want them to get out of it? And so then when you really think about that, you're thinking about them. You're thinking about their benefit. You become less selfish or, you know, we all need a little bit of help pulling our head out of our you-know-what. And so what's in it for you? Let me tee that up. All of my thoughts, all of my brilliance, all of my experiences, let me tee up the ones that are going to be useful to you so that you can do blah, blah, blah. That's why I'm here to speak to you. Yeah. So once you, I think when people zero in on that before they start writing and before they do their deck, then you really know your script and your 
trajectory. And it makes it 10 times easier to do and 10 times less nerve-wracking. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Are you trying to increase your treatment plan close rates while also increasing revenue? How can you do both for your dental practice without burning out an already burdened staff? The answer? Remote dental monitoring. You need a trusted HIPAA-compliant app that helps you and your staff work smarter, not harder. This needs to be an easy-to-use, easy-onboard app that your patients will find fun to use and will increase their engagement and success with aligners. You need the InHand Dental app. The InHand Dental app allows you to engage with your patients in real time, send individual and batched messages, and solve problems to increase compliance without using up chair time. The result? Happy patients, happy staff, and happy practices. With more revenue and the ability to do more starts. With prices starting as low as $149 a month, it's perfect for a growing aligner business. Check us out and learn more at InHandDental.com. Plus, mention Burleson for a 20% off discount on your subscription when you contact us. That's InHandDental.com. And now, back to the program. You just touched a nerve because we've all been in, in our association meetings. There'll be a thousand orthodontists in a room and big, huge multi displays. And someone will be pulling up their laptop and it'll say something like, well, I've got about 500 slides here. I'm going, whoa, he definitely started with his slides. He's like, which ones? I can't get through them all. I'm going, man, like it's so And I have. There's a question in this and I'm kind of rambling. When I see someone who has 500 slides, <laughs> I think they haven't started with why they're here. And then the other question, and don't, someone can fact check this. I think someone like Frank Sinatra, maybe it was Dean Martin, basically said, hey, anyone that needs more than a microphone and a spotlight is a putz, right? Like, I don't need all this like showy stuff in the background. Uh, what are your thoughts on visual aids? I think some of my favorite presentations I've ever seen, some of my favorite speakers, it's just them. There's there's no visual slides. What, what are your thoughts on slides and, and, and getting to the why? We could talk for an hour about this. I think, look, the whole purpose of having a meeting or a presentation or a live engagement, it comes down to the people. It comes down to you and your eyes looking at them and your heart and your soul and your brain, whatever, your presence, making a connection with them. So if it were just about the information, you could email that. You send a spreadsheet. So they're on this very animal level, you have to come to grips with that. You're there. They invited you there because they want a piece of you. They want to feel you. They want a connection with you. So I'm not saying people shouldn't use slides, but people lean on their slides to a ridiculous degree. I mean, how many times have you seen a speaker turning their back to the audience, reading from the slide as if the audience is illiterate? <laughs> it's like, it's really uncool. I kick people's asses for that. I yell at them and say, it's public speaking, not public reading. Reading. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay, good. I just, I, I had to let that cat out of the bag because I think we've all been to those where we're like, oh, there's a hundred words on each. It's not just 500 slides. There's a hundred words. on I do entire workshops based on just slides and how to simplify them and how to, you know, if you really do the, the writing better, you can simplify your ideas. You can offload a lot of the factual stuff that you think is really, really necessary to include, which isn't. 
you can distill your points and say, look, I'm here because I want us to figure out what are we going to do about this problem coming up in third quarter? Da, 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 da. You don't need, you can send the slides, you can talk about those in a different format, but a live format is just terrible for getting through a lot of numbers and figures and graphs and all that stuff. So getting rid of 80% of it is a good step one. Step two is put one idea per slide. I see it all the time with finance companies. You know, they have four different charts explaining four different things on one slide. And there's no human who can sift through that and know what it means. So it's just this kind of perfunctory performance that no one is getting and no one's getting the value from it. So they're just sleepwalking. And that is the opposite of connecting. You know, but when you do get the slides right, it's magic and it's really fun. And people are learning along with you, the speaker, and everyone's getting a ton of information from it. So it's, I'm not saying don't use slides, but you just want to use them in the right way. Tie in with the connection, right? How do you, personally, how do you feel at the end of a presentation? Even if it's just a small team meeting, how do you know you've connected with the audience? I think it's funny. I kind of write about that in the book. It's very hard to say what connection is, but it's really easy to list the 20 ways when it's the opposite, when you're not connecting. So when people look at their phone, when they're looking at you in horror, like, what are you talking about? You know, looking at you with just dazed incomprehension. I think, you know, when people really respond, when they, when you're asking questions or answers, or, you know, it's time for people to respond. If you get a really lively response, preferably the response isn't like, kill him. <laughs> but you know, I think you just you want to have everyone on the same page, not necessarily agreeing with you because that's not realistic, but at least just understanding what you said and and getting a thoughtful response. I'm curious timeline for a lot of the clients you work with uh, to help them with public speaking. How long does it take to learn these skills? Is this something you <laughs> you need years to learn? Is it is it faster than that? No, it's kind of shocking. I mean, one of the problems I have as a as a guy who now has a business teaching this stuff is I run through clients too quickly. Everyone learns it pretty quickly. And I always tell them the goal for most people is not to be Martin Luther King. It's not, you're not going to be Steve Jobs. The goal is just to not suck at this and to get over most of the anxiety, not all, but just most, and to be able to do a competent job for the rest of your life. So for most people, that is three to 10 hours. It's just not, once you get these methods in place and you start using them, you don't need me anymore. And you use these methods repeatedly and every time they get a bit better and you get a bit more adroit with using them, you get a bit more confident. You realize, oh, this actually works. So yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty short. If someone is really writing something fancy, some big thought leadership thing, or I worked with a client for a TED talk, um, you know, suddenly, yeah, you could put in a hundred hours in a month to get to get ready for something like that because you have to practice it and write it and try out a bunch of things and rehearse them and try it again. And same with the deck. But for the average person doing a speech or a presentation at a conference or just learning to prepare for a scary meeting, three is at the low end, but ten is at the high end. Number of hours that it takes. It's pretty uh, inspiring for those of us who might think it takes a, a lot longer than that um i want to touch on a really profound thing you you a concept you bring up in the book that i had never considered before and you say speech anxiety is really a form of selfishness and i want to i want to dig into that a little bit and then 
relate it to how we often as doctors presenting to patients are actually being very selfish, right? There's old data. I went and actually want to make sure I actually did fact check this. So, so in 1984, there was an article in New England Journal of Medicine said that the doctor interrupts the patient after 18 seconds. So doctor asks you a question, you start talking, 18 seconds, and we interrupt. 2018, University of Florida and Mayo Clinic, it's down to 11 seconds. So uh, maybe some supporting data there that we, uh, <laughs> the doctor just jumps in like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you got going on. Let me tell you more about what I think. Often I used to think that was just oversharing or just nervousness. And, but it seems like maybe it's being selfish, right? Dustin, that's amazing. That is really cool, useful stuff. I think that's just a great example of people failing to understand your purpose of communication. If you think about a doctor-patient communication, is it to pass along information or is it to create a connection, right? I have seen the statistic that says that patients who spend more time with their doctors, um, there are less, you know, fewer lawsuits ensue. And so if you think about that for 10 seconds, you realize, okay, patients want that connection, even if doctors probably don't care as much. So that's a great example of being selfish. The doctor is not only the doctor is being ignorant in that situation about what the patient needs and what is ultimately for the well-being of both of them. But we all, you know, since they stopped teaching public speaking, we all stopped learning the importance of it. And so we just discount it. We discount it. And we think knowledge is the thing. Facts are the thing. So whether you call it selfishness or just our attention is trained in the wrong direction. We just think, you know, Dustin, I got to show you how smart I am. I got to get you my information, even if you're miserable, even if you hate me. And obviously that's really unwise and immature and just kind of obviously wrong. Once you look at it, you know, take a couple steps back and look at it again. But I, I feel uncomfortable sometimes using the word selfish, but I don't know of a better word. Self-centered, I guess. So I'm thinking of my, I've got, I'm just bursting with this encyclopedic knowledge of everything I know. And I've got to bombard you with it instead of just shutting up for 60 seconds and listening. Well, what do you actually need? And I think that's hard, not just for doctors, but everyone at every level of society everywhere. Yeah, you actually, uh, I think that was one of your speeches, if I remember correctly, in the book with Toastmasters was bringing up the topic that maybe we should speak less. I thought that was brilliant <laughs> amongst a lot of fellow uh, professionals who like to speak, um, suggesting that we all talk a little less was was a cool, was a cool idea. <laughs> I realize, you know, there's a lot of the Greeks get credit for inventing this comprehensive system of teaching speech, but most cultures that were worth their salt also had pretty interesting thoughts about speech. And one of the big Chinese things, like from Confucius more than anyone, was just shut up and and sort of saying, you know, superior people don't have to prove themselves all the time. And usually people who are clever talkers are liars or they're being manipulative. So if you're really cool, you'll just shut up. But then other commentators said, yeah, and Confucius talked a lot. And that's how we all know how smart he was. You know, so <laughs> somewhere in there, the truth lies. Yeah, <laughs> goes back to saying maybe the right thing that the audience needs to hear at that time, which is really powerful. Can we talk about takeaways? You know, what, what what are your goals with takeaways and what are maybe some examples? I'm thinking now as a doctor who's going to listen more 
to the patient and make sure that they've got what they need out of that interaction. Um, how important is the takeaway and what are some tips when you're designing those for uh, any, any presentation? I think, again, just running through sort of my step one and step two, and there's a step three, which we won't get into, but just think about who your audience is and think about why you're talking to them. So part of that kind of presupposes a takeaway. I want Dustin to know that if he's anxious about speech, he can do these steps one and two or look up my website or look up any other websites and be able to get what he wants or be able to overcome that next challenge. So I think for doctors and patients, you know, it's just taking that 30 second pause or two minute pause, whatever, before the communication to think about what you just asked me. What do I want them? Like, I don't know what the takeaway is, but you have to think beforehand and remember that there is a takeaway and remember to articulate the takeaway rather than just assuming that you're going to get there in the conversation or that the patient is going to get it. And so you just form your whole conversation around this idea of, okay, I want them to know this. I want to leave them time to maybe ask any questions they might have about it, because I might want to give them the takeaway in the form that I think they should have it, but they might not know how to use it, or they might have questions about it or objections or who knows what, but people never do what you think they're going to do. So anticipate that in advance instead of just try to ram it all through, which is what we all do. You and I may, may have spoken about this at, in our pre-call, but we send in secret shoppers to our top clients to actual patients who go in with a lapel camera or a, or a purse camera. And then we transcribe every word the doctor says. And they do these in high-end restaurants and hotels and retail shops. And it's unbelievable. You can just look at the transcript and see if the doctor is saying like eight paragraphs and the patient says, like, you know, three words, we know that conversation is upside down and trying to get it flipped is largely, you know, doing this, like, you know, what do they need from this? How will, how will we leave this interaction where I know her story versus her knowing everything about our practice. Right. So um, it's interesting. I mean, it's what's weird about it, how easy it is to teach that. I mean, again, that seems like some ingrained psychological trait. You could say, oh, doctors are arrogant or doctors are this. Or you could talk about modern medical practice. It's really hard because of this and this and this reason. But to correct for this is just weirdly easy. It doesn't it doesn't require some big psychological makeover or some big industry wide makeover to flip that around and it's just shockingly easy once you get it into people's head that it's possible and that it's easy. Just if you organize your thoughts well and tee them up well, instead of just barging into situations and hoping that it works out well, it's amazing how much better it works out. Yep. I'm curious your thoughts uh, continuing moving forward on Toastmasters. Is that something you encourage uh, employees of yours to do or employees of your clients to do as well? I get accused now all the time of being a paid shill for Toastmasters. <laughs> That's how much I encourage everyone to join them and make use of them. And I do this think the world brought to you by Toastmasters. Yeah, brought to you by. But, you know, they're entirely nonprofit. And I used to work as an investigative journalist, and I never had the experience where I showed up somewhere and people said, oh, yeah, we're opening our doors to you. Come on in and look around and do whatever you want. And they were so quick to do that. And. You know, it's just because as an organization, they've always been sterling since they were founded 100 plus years ago. And, you know, they don't charge a dime more than they have to. There's just never been a big controversy about Toastmasters. 
They just really have. They walk the walk. They talk the talk, so to speak. No pun intended. And yeah, they've spread all over the world. So anybody can join and you can kind of mold the Toastmasters group to your organization's needs. They have sort of public-private Toastmasters and even private ones. I think Bank of America has something like 60 different inside, in-house Toastmasters chapters. So, you know, you could have one for dentists and a separate one for orthodontists, a separate one for different types of doctoring um, surgeons and where people would really get practice doing the thing they do. I'm curious what what's the time commitment like when you I know you were you were deeply involved in investigating and researching for the book, but moving forward, do you use that a quarterly thing? Is that a monthly thing? What's what's the time like? I mean, anybody can kind of dip in and out of Toastmasters. I was in a rush to go through them because I was writing a book and I needed to be the guinea pig who subjected himself to going through Toastmasters. They've changed it around since I did that, so they have a different introductory cycle. I had a book that had 10 different speeches and each one of them worked on a rudiment of public speaking. And it was crazy. It's so weird because it's very meta. It's very kind of fourth wall You break down the performance of being a human and using your body and using your voice and using words in a way that at first is kind of awkward and shocking. And But then you, you take apart your personality kind of and put it back together over the course of these 10 introductory speeches. So I don't know. I think I think a lot of Toastmasters join and have a pretty intensive year or two with it, and then they back off and they get busy doing other things. My cousin, who I wrote about in the book, The Recluse, he I think he just went for a few months, and it changed his whole life. There was a prisoner I wrote about, too, who was stuck in jail in Louisiana, who couldn't, he would come up for parole hearings every couple of years, and he would get tongue-tied and blow his chance at freedom. And then a fellow prisoner suggested that he join Toastmasters, and six months later, the guy's walking out of jail, a free man. So that's, for me, in a way, the most powerful story of just, wow, you can get that big of an effect with that, you know, just going to this club once a week for an hour. It's amazing. You overheard someone in one of the classes, and I don't want to misquote her, but it was essentially, she said, I feel like I'm becoming more human. I'm becoming more of myself. Uh, is that a common finding after going through Toastmasters? I mean, to express it so profoundly and simply, I didn't hear that all the time. But yeah, I think that is the result. I think if you go through the world thinking, I'm too uptight, I'm too anxious to speak well, I can't connect with anyone. And the flip side of that is, oh, everyone's so dumb, no one understands me. And I think if you could really do an honest reckoning with people and see how much of that we all feel, like, oh, I just, people never slow down and listen to me, or people don't care about me. And if you really dig deeper, it's like, well... Are you making yourself easy to understand? So if you suddenly insert this insight, this IP, this Greek IP, this how to do public speaking thing, and you realize, oh my gosh, I can solve this problem relatively easy. Yeah, the result from that is you become more human. You start, you like people better. You like yourself better because you just don't feel so frustrated. And I think, you know, to go back to that purpose thing, not to bang the drum again and again, but if you're just thinking I'm a zip drive or a disk drive and I've got to relay my data into your brain so that you have my data, that's not very human. But if I think, oh, Dustin's having a really busy day, I want to give him this information. How do I give it to him in the most useful way? So I'm thinking about you as a human suddenly, not just a disk drive. It's really powerful. 
It's really, really powerful. Uh, we could talk all day. I know your time is very valuable. I want to make sure listeners have a chance to not only go get the book, but learn more about you and what you're writing and teaching and what you're up to next. Where, where can people learn more about you? Well, I publish stuff pretty regularly. I do little how-to articles for CNBC very often. I just did an op-ed for the New York Times about how we need to re, you know, we need to start teaching this stuff to kids again, because you look at the mental health statistics for kids before and after COVID. It was bad before COVID. It's twice as bad now. The Surgeon General just came out with this amazing study a few months ago about our epidemic of loneliness. So my, the purpose of the piece was just to say, hey, we can fix a lot of this for very little money and time. Let's start teaching this stuff again. So that's, I don't know, I, pu I publish stuff pretty regularly. I have a website where anyone can come find me. It's johnfbo.com. LinkedIn is pretty big for my kind of people. Um, I'm not a huge TikTok guy. No, <laughs> not yet. <laughs> starting, starting to do that because, you know, you were talking about this earlier. Video is everything. So if you can explain how public speaking works and kind of de-geekify it, that's my mission in life is just to make it be accessible to people and realize what a big deal it is and what an easy thing it is. And, you know, so I'm out there in the world on social media now more and more. Cool. Yeah, I think, honestly, there'd be some people that I've seen. I'm like, how did you look? I'll see an assistant who's a Gen Z and they'll do something neat. And like, where'd you learn that? She's like, oh, I watched a TikTok video. So there's TikTok videos on little dental techniques. There's a certain on resume writing. And now uh, you'll, we'll, we'll tee up for public speaking classes on, on TikTok. <laughs> I mean, I really hope it's, it is the thing that attracted me to it was the fact that you could get all of the psychiatric help without paying a ton of money or taking drugs in hours, days, whatever. And it's just, it's this shocking thing that no one knows about. So yeah, I want to get the word out. I'll I'll bow down to TikTok and social media <laughs> and start making little videos if it helps people. You heard it here first. He's gonna have millions of TikTok followers. We'll post <laughs> we'll post a link to the New York Times uh, op-ed, which is how I found you. Uh, it's an ancient solution to our current crisis of disconnection. I sent that to probably ten people at my kids' school. I said, "Hey, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this." And uh, we oh, thank you so much. I mean, I'm starting, I, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm starting a nonprofit and want to turn this into a big thing because it's really cheap and it's pretty easy to get it out there. But I just cannot imagine anything that would get more bang per buck than this. Yeah, I agree 100%. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for writing the book. It's brilliant. It was such an honor to speak with you. Oh, thank you, Dustin. Me too. It was a really fun conversation. Thanks for joining me on another episode of the Burleson Box. And a special thank you to John Bowe for coming on the show. If you liked what you heard, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. That helps us spread the word and share the message with other like-minded professionals. And until next time, I'm looking forward to seeing you right here inside another episode of the Burleson Box. Dr. Burleson here. You've heard that real estate should be a part of every investor's portfolio, but maybe you're unsure where to start. My good friend and colleague, Dr. David Phelps, leads an investor community that has ditched the traditional Wall Street model for the stability of real estate assets. They are called Freedom Founders, and they do real estate really, really well. 
David's Freedom Blueprint reveals exactly how much you need to retire. Some of my top clients have done the program. They speak highly of David and his Freedom Blueprint. With the certainty of their passive real estate investments, Freedom Founders members are free to spend more time with family or even leave the practice altogether. David has put together some special resources for my listeners. To access, just text Dustin to 972-203-6960 or go to freedomfounders.com forward slash Burleson.